Review Committee. Uh, good evening. I'd like to call this meeting of uh, the Charter Review Committee to order, if I may. Um, Shirley, would you uh, please take a moment and make the appropriate uh, announcements, speakers, three-minute rules, and so yes. on? Yes. Um, for those of you wishing to speak to items on the agenda or under public comment, there are speaker slips in the back of the room. If you could complete one and turn it in to Stephanie here at the front, that would be helpful. We have a three-minute time limit for public comment. If you have a cell phone, if you could please turn it to the off or silent position, that would be appreciated. Thank you. Okay, I think we're ready for a roll call, um, and surely your okay. determination as to whether we have a quorum, please. All right. Um, Joanne Fuller. Present. Cecily Hastings. Here. Grantland Johnson. Alan LaFosso. Here. Robert Murphy. Here. Chester Newland. Here. Chris Tapio. Here. John Taylor. Here. Tina Thomas. Here. And Jay Wisham. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, Let's see. Mark, do we have any um, staff comments this evening? I have a few brief comments, and I understand the city attorney's office does as well. Uh, briefly, the supplemental materials that were handed out by the city clerk's office and the registrar of voters have now been posted to this, to this committee's July 2nd website agenda, and we will eventually post those on the city's bibliography, on the website, the committee's website's bibliography of resources. So initially you can find them under the 7-2 agenda. Later you will find them under the, in addition to that location, you will find them under the bibliography of resources. There was also a question and uh, about uh, during the Dave Mora presentation, Mr. Mora from ICMA referenced 17 strong mayor cities. I've been in communication with Mr. Mora since that meeting. And we both had some concerns about the data after we took a look at that initial list of 17. And essentially, there were a number of very small cities on there that uh, later appeared to be council manager forms of government cities. And so essentially, that leaves us with a, a list of, that we agreed on of six cities that were reasonable comparison cities, meaning size and population. And those included Los Angeles, San Diego, Oakland, San Francisco, Fresno, and San Bernardino. And I'm in the process of beginning to gather some job descriptions for the city manager or city administrator, chief executive officer for those agencies so that we'll later be able to share a comprehensive list of those that speaks to the qualifications and other issues that the committee had asked about. Uh, additionally, tonight, uh, this afternoon, actually, we distributed an email update using the new email subscription service for this committee. There was a public inquiry related to that. Uh, distributed to the to you today. There are today 48 registered users of that, and if anyone has any questions, I'll be happy to walk um, you through the process. And finally, uh, the website has been updated uh, in the following areas. The bibliography of resources has been reorganized by subject matter, and additional materials are now posted there. There is also a link to the progress report that was done in June. Both the staff report and the video are now accessible off the committee's website. And we've separated the community and, and committee meeting schedule links. Previously, they were all included in one document. Today, there are now two links to each of those different uh, calendars. Okay, thanks, Mark. Matt? I just wanted to follow up on an issue that arose at our last meeting, and I indicated I would follow up um, with you on this, and I would be happy to put this together in a 
memorandum later, but I just wanted to confirm that upon further research, it appears that the uh, IRV or choice rank voting would be an acceptable form of voting for the city of Sacramento and would not run afoul of the California Constitution. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Members, uh, with regard to the agenda itself, I'd like to uh, have the committee's approval of continuing item six. That was, uh, as we, when we get to item five, you'll see that that was incorrectly uh, posted for this meeting tonight. So if I could have a motion to continue item six to your meeting of August 3rd, I would appreciate it. Thank you, Ellen. Second? Second. Thank you, Bob. Uh, All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Thank you very much. And I'll explain that a little bit when we get to item five. Um, Sorry about that. Okay. Members, we're at item one. Uh, Shirley, could you read the item, please? Yes. Item one is the approval of the minutes, and there are the minutes for the July 2nd meeting. Are there any corrections or changes? If not, I... I could accept a motion to approve and a second. Thank you, Bob. Any second? Second. Thank you, Alan. Uh, All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Okay. Minutes are approved. Uh, Shirley, item number two, please. Item number two is the correspondence. You will also note that at the dais there is one public contact sheet that is in front of you, as that was um, an email that we received after we had published this agenda. In addition, you have um, a letter from Ann Rudin, former Mayor Ann Rudin, and let's see what else is in here. Uh, Justin Smith also had a comment section, a public comment note, and I believe that's it. Am I missing one? That's it. Okay, the only Miss um, Rudin's uh, uh, comment is self-explanatory. There is one from this Justin Smith, and I'm assuming he's referring to the mayor's proposal that's now before, uh, or the petitions are being verified. Um, Did you talk to him about that? I did. I telephoned Mr. Smith last week, and we discussed uh, the fact that there was a staff report prepared by the city attorney's office that outlined that proposal. I directed directed him to the committee's website where it's listed under the Bibliography of Resources. Okay. And then with uh, the one we received tonight, has he been informed of how that email works, that system? I think that individual was looking for the city to begin using that system. Okay. And we began using that this afternoon. Oh, okay. And we talked a little bit about that at the last meeting and talked about the process to, to become subscribed to that website. And as the website begins to be utilized and we post additional documents, we intend to use that subscription service to alert users that not only, you know, not only of a meeting agenda, but also materials that change on the website. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, Any committee questions on the correspondence? Oh, oh, Mr. Tapio. I also wanted to bring to the committee's attention that um, there was an editorial in one of our local papers um, over the weekend. Um, in my interpretation, encouraging our committee to do its job and apparently to let other people let us do our job. So um, we may want to consider um, circulating that among the committee members in case anybody missed it. 
Anybody miss it? I don't think so, Chris. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, okay. We're on to item three, Shirley. Item number three is the presentation by the New America Foundation. Blair, I believe his name is Bobier. Did I pronounce that correctly? Bobier. Thank you. We're uh, pleased to have Mr. Uh, Blair uh, Bobier here today from the New America Foundation. He has requested to make a presentation on this item. Uh, Mark, could you briefly give us uh, his background? Sure. Or introduce him. Well, we obviously appreciate Mr. Bobier's time. Uh, he traveled from the Bay Area to be with us this evening. He's the Deputy Director of, the politi of Political Reform at the New America Foundation. He's a lawyer with a long history as an educator and advocate of electoral reform. He's testified, testified before the Hawaii Legislature and numerous charter review commissions. He served as an adjunct faculty member of the Political Science Department at Western Oregon University, and he's written widely on electoral reform. Mr. Bobier earned his bachelor's degree at the University of Maryland and graduated with honors from Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. Mr. Bobier, we're very pleased to have you with us. Uh, actually honored uh, this evening that you've taken your time from your busy schedule to be here. Um, but before you proceed, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know whether the rest of the committee are having this problem. It's probably just me. But we've heard several terms for this subject matter, um, and it, either instant runoff voting or proportional voting or voter preferential voting. And in your uh, testimony, would you please indicate if there's a difference, if it all means the same thing, or what is a better explanation? It seems to me what we're talking about is voter preferential voting. But whatever. Please proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Members of the committee, I, I will, in fact, get to that. Uh, thank you, Mark, for that kind introduction, which I wrote myself. Um, I'd like to thank the committee for having me here today. I'd like to thank you for your volunteer service. I'd like to thank you for considering election systems. And I'd like to thank you for uh, bringing me up to the valley here on a day of uh, triple-digit heat, I have a newfound appreciation for bone-chilling fog. Uh, <clears throat> I do the work that I do because voting, to me, is the heart of the democratic process. And I really believe that voting and democracy are sacred. And there are some really important things to know about election systems. And one of the most important things to know is that election systems are the result of legislation. And here's why that's important. So we have the folks in the back. Do I have to push anything here? It's the Will Rogers quote, there are two things you never want to see being made, sausage and legislation. So I say that because much of what we have in terms of election systems are the result of legislation, which is the result at best of compromise and horse trading. At worst, they're uh, deliberate attempts to disenfranchise different segments of the population. And what I want to do is do a little bit of an overview of voting and voting in the United States, and then I'll hone in on the different types of systems that you might be considering as you look at revising your charter. So remember that the U.S. has a long history of voter disenfranchisement, and I really think this is important to keep in perspective. 
Of course, women, people of color, people without property could not vote at the inception of our republic. And so while some of us have a somewhat reverential and starry-eyed view of the founding of our country and how these systems came into place, I think it's really important to differentiate the sausage from the sacred. And, and just by way of a few examples, the Electoral College is really a vestige of our slave-owning past uh, that really weighted the, the decks in favor of slave-owning states, which probably explains why so many of our early presidents were from Virginia. Uh, the U.S. Senate, another result of compromise, and again having to do with slavery to some extent. So we are now at the point where California's 38 million residents have two representatives in the United States Senate, and so does Wyoming with its population of 500,000 or so. I want to just tell you very briefly about an experience I had with the Oregon legislature where I went in to testify about an election bill that was before uh, a conference committee. It was the end of the session. The session was actually in overtime. The Oregon legislature meets just six months out of every two years. They're supposed to wrap it up by Memorial Day, and here was a session stretching on into a, a long, hot summer. And I went in to testify about one provision, which I was very dogged at sticking to, and the chair of the committee was getting a little frustrated with, with my position. And he held up the gavel, I thought, in somewhat of a menacing way, and said, if I give you what you want on this provision, will you go away? And I said, yes. He swung the ha uh, gavel down, fortunately. The bill passed out of committee and was signed into law. I think I did a good job on that provision, but it's just more sausage, more compromises and horse trading. So there's not necessarily rhyme or reason to why we have things the way we are. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Something else that's important to keep in mind is that voting systems are science and technology, and they are products of their times and of their ages. The voting system that much of the U.S. uses is Elizabethan in origin. So we are using, in many instances, campfire voting systems in a microwave era. Now, old-fashioned isn't necessarily bad. Um, and, and new isn't necessary. I mean, I, I, I like air conditioning. That's a great uh, modern improvement. If I went to a doctor and he offered to treat me with leeches, I'd be a little suspect. So we've progressed a long way in terms of our communications and our medicine. We can progress in our voting systems as well. Now, I've done some preliminary analysis of Sacramento's elections, and it's by no means exhaustive. Uh, we could get to an exhaustive analysis, perhaps, but just in, in terms of making this presentation, I had to do some preliminary analysis. And I do have some suggestions and recommendations, as well as some concerns. And as far as those concerns go, I'm going to hold off on those just a little bit to build some tension here. Um, but I've been asked to speak about instant runoff voting and proportional representation. And uh, before I do that, let's just look at what you have now. As I understand it, you have a mayor that is elected citywide, and that is the result of a two-round runoff, potentially, if no candidate gets a majority of the vote in the first round of the election. City council is elected by districts and also uh, is a two-round runoff. Does anyone know uh, what those systems are referred to in, in kind of voting system parlance? We have names for all these things. So this is known as either a single-member plurality election or a two-round system because there's two rounds of runoffs. And they're not always neat and clean. Sometimes these overlap. So instant runoff voting 
and not to confuse things necessarily, but in San Francisco it's called ranked choice voting, <laughs> and it is a preferential type of system, and preferential systems can be both uh, an, an instant runoff or a proportional system, but instant runoff is used to elect a single office holder. So it could be a mayor, a governor, a president, were we to uh, ditch the electoral college. Uh, and when you have a city council that's elected by district, you're electing one person at a time. One of the primary distinctions of a, a preferential system of instant runoff voting is that you are voting for candidates and ranking them in order of preference instead of voting for just one. So I, th I know you've seen some ballots. I'm going to show you one here. This is from Tacoma Park, Maryland. And as you can see, you can fill in the oval next to your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, and there's a space for a write-in so you could go to a fourth choice. So that's, that's what a ballot looks like. I'll show you another example. Just to... uh, this is uh, probably based on the San Francisco ballot. This is part of a educational brochure that the Oakland, or excuse me, the Alameda County um, registrar is coming up with an anticipation of their use of instant runoff for ranked choice voting. So it's, it's very simple. Um, you rank your candidates in order of preference. If someone gets a majority of first preferences, 50% plus one, that candidate's elected. That's it. If no candidate gets a majority of first choice preferences, you eliminate the candidate with the fewest first choice preferences and the people who voted for the eliminated candidate then have their votes counted for their second or third choices. Well, why use runoff elections? And I'll show you an example. This is a three-way race that was, uh, just took place in Virginia. I did a analysis of this and wrote an op-ed for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Uh, so here you see the, the winning candidate won with 37% of the vote. That means that 63% of voters voted for a losing candidate. That's what happens when you don't have runoffs. This is a plurality, winner-take-all. Plurality means more votes than anyone else gets. You don't have to necessarily get a majority. So ideally, you would want to have majority rule, and you want to have the will of the majority of the voters respected. Well, in this case, obviously, the majority of voters voted for losing candidates, and I hope you would agree that that's really unacceptable. So we'll look at how an instant runoff might have affected this. So as I've said, you eliminate the last place candidate. In this case, it was Childress, or Childress, uh, and then the votes from childists would transfer to the other candidates. So this is all hypothetical at this point, but let's just say um, childress did have 27% of the vote. If 15% went to Woodard and 12% went to Steele, there you go. You've got a majority candidate, and it can be done in one election. There's a simple way to look at this. Let's see if that makes it on. Oh, there they go. So it's just a little flow chart. Um, if you uh, look at the first choice, does a candidate have a majority? Yes. Boom, you've got a winner. No, you eliminate the last place candidate. 
transfer votes, recount the ballots, do you have a majority, and the process repeats. Well, why use instant runoff voting? And there's a number of good reasons to do so. For one, you can get the results of the election in one election instead of two. In some places, that translates into considerable savings. So Los Angeles right now is looking at instant runoff voting. They seem to hold elections just about every other week at enormous expense, and nobody shows up. They spend millions and millions of dollars on elections. So Los Angeles could save millions of dollars. Uh, other jurisdictions might not save as much. It really depends on how much you spend on elections, how often they're held, and how many runoffs there are. But I think it's important when you consider the overall costs of elections and the potential cost of switching to an instant runoff system is to factor in the savings. There will be savings. And I suggest what you do is find out from the registrar of voters, the city clerk, how much do you pay for elections? And then you can look at the past. Well, gee, you've had mayoral runoffs in this year and in this year. How much did those cost us? And what are they likely to cost us in the future? And then you have to do a cost savings analysis. One of the other benefits of an instant runoff system, a preferential system, is that there's no vote splitting or spoilers. Okay, in a uh, winner-take-all system, if you don't have runoff elections, you can have splitting of the votes. You can have uh, different candidates. You say you have a bunch of liberal candidates in a race, for lack of a better term, and a conservative candidate. Well, the liberals could all split their votes, and you'd wind up with a conservative being elected, or vice versa. Instant runoff can produce better campaigns, and I distributed an article uh, through uh, Mark here, which should be in your packet or on your uh, website, from the New York Times, which analyzed San Francisco's first use of instant runoff voting, and they found that candidates were cooperating, and they weren't slinging mud. And the reason for that is using this system shifts the dynamics of campaigns. If you are in a three-way race, and you need the second choice votes, potentially, of another candidate, you don't want to go and trash that candidate. What you want to say is, look, this is where candidate A and I agree on the issues, and if you prefer that candidate, I respectfully request your second choice vote. And that dynamic has played out in San Francisco. There are recent news reports from Burlington, Vermont, which uses IRV to elect its mayor, and it confirms that it, the tenor of the campaigns improve. Another advantage of shifting to one election instead of two is that campaigns become shorter and less expensive. If you have to mount a campaign for the June primary, and then you have to mount a second campaign for a November election, that gets pretty expensive. And it starts to raise the bar pretty high for citizens to get into the electoral process. In doing some of my research, for this presentation, I spoke to someone, a former state official, who considered running for mayor here in Sacramento and said, campaign's too long and it gets too expensive. I, I wouldn't do it under the current system. So you might encourage more people to run and more competition. Something very distinctive about having two round runoffs as opposed to an instant runoff is that you're going to get low voter turnout in one round or another. And I'll show you what happens in... So these are statewide figures. 
for the primary and the general election. Now, the interesting thing about Sacramento's elections that I saw was that most, for the council races, most of the elections are decided at the primary in June. Well, look at the voter turnout on average for the primary, 38.7%. That's who's deciding your city council races, 387 of registered voters. And, of course, registered voters aren't all of the eligible voters. So if you start getting it down, you're getting about a quarter, probably, of your voting age population making the decisions about who represents Sacramento. If you used an instant runoff system, you could do it at the general election, and as you can see, voter turnout is much higher in November, as a rule, than at the primary. You also get a different electorate. The uh, primary electorate tends to be uh, whiter, wealthier, sometimes more conservative. So there's, there's different electorates. And so I think for democratic reasons, having your elections, the ones that really matter, in November is a good thing. So instant runoff voting is used in San Francisco. Oakland and Berkeley have approved it and are uh, expected to implement it for the upcoming 2010 elections. San Jose is looking at instant runoff voting. It is on the agenda for their elections commission. Long Beach and Pasadena are looking at it. L.A. city and county, both. Uh, it's just recently used in Aspen, Colorado. It will be rolled out in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's used in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Overseas voters use it in Illinois, South Carolina, and Louisiana. That's because it takes uh, potentially a long time for ballots to go to people who are overseas in the military or whatever to have them returned. And then if there's a runoff election, there's not necessarily enough time to print the ballots, get them out, get them back. So those states use um, instant runoff for overseas voters. The mayor of London's been elected with instant runoff voting and the president of Ireland. I know there are some questions about certification of voting equipment. Uh, Again, I've spoken with Lowell Finley, the Assistant, Dep uh, Assistant Secretary of State for Voting Technology, uh, as well as uh, the Registrar of Voters in Alameda County, and the certification does not appear to be an obstacle at all for San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley. Their systems at this point seem to be on an all-systems-are-go uh, track, and instant runoff will be used in all jurisdictions for their upcoming elections. Uh, Sacramento could use its existing equipment for an instant runoff voting uh, election. Uh, there might be a little bit of jury rigging that would be involved with it, but it is the same type of equipment that has been used in North Carolina for instant runoff voting, and it's the same machines that Minneapolis has, and they'll be using instant runoff. Again, I know there are some questions about costs, uh, so I urge you to look at the costs, look at the savings, balance those out. There is a cost for voter education. Every community that has switched to instant runoff voting has had some type of voter education process. Those costs have averaged about 50 cents per registered voter. So I, I would suggest that the costs and the certification issues are not insurmountable, and that if you're interested in using this system or another one, look around and look widely and see what other jurisdictions have done you can consult organizations such as ours and find um, there, there are multiple ways to skin a rabbit, as it were. Uh, okay, now uh, 
I'll kind of shift and talk about proportional representation. So proportional representation is basically a form of elections that seeks to maximize representation and minimize wasted votes. Uh, proportional representation looks to, in essence, recreate a miniature of society in the legislature. So that's, that's what proportional representation is. It, it is used uh, commonly in Europe, Latin America, um, the former communist regimes that have switched to democratic processes. I think just about everyone uses proportional representation. I don't think any of them have chosen our system. And rather tellingly, in Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States has promoted proportional representation. Um, proportional representation is used for legislative bodies. Okay, so whereas instant runoff voting is something you can use to elect one person, one office at a time, proportional representation is used for legislative bodies, whether it's a city council, a county, state, or federal legislature. Uh, it, the distinguishing characteristic is we're talking about multi-member bodies. And uh, another interesting thing to note is that the only countries that really use this winner-take-all system that we use, also called first-past-the-post, is Great Britain and former British colonies. So the United States, Canada, India, Jamaica, there's only a handful of countries that still use this system. Proportional representation was created to address a number of inequities in this winner-take-all system. Gerrymandering, which is the process where uh, politicians choose their voters before the voters get to choose the politicians. Uh, a lack of representation, and I'll explain in a minute, but exaggerated or manufactured majorities. Uh, very often under our current system, someone might get 51% of the vote, but they get 100% of the um, representation. So to illustrate that, so I just took eight districts, not unlike Sacramento, and this is, of course, uh, an incredibly simple example, but look what happens if you have two different groups of voters, A and B, and if you divide things up district by district, and the A's get 51% in each district, and then you total it all up, well, the A's will have 100% of the representation and the B's have nothing. Okay. Well, that's obviously somewhat simplistic, but it shows how uh, majorities get exaggerated. Throw this one quote at you from one of our founding fathers, which I just uh, paraphrased. And it's interesting to note that countries that use proportional representation have some of the highest percentages of women in their legislatures, ethnic minorities, and representation of all political parties. There are very few wasted votes and a very high voter turnout. There are a number of different kinds of proportional representation, and in this brief time that I have with you today, I won't either enlighten or bore you with it, as the case may be. Um, I would like to focus on one particular kind, which is called choice voting and has the uh, 
maybe unfortunate technical name of single transferable vote. Uh, but it's a choice voting system that works very similarly to instant runoff. You rank candidates in order of preference. The candidates with the, well, I should say that if a candidate gets a majority of first preference votes, they're elected. Um, if there are no candidates that have that majority in the first round, you eliminate candidates with the fewest first choice votes, the votes transfer. Uh, the, the difference is, is in how the votes are transferred, and I won't get into the equation at this point, but it's a mathematical formula that allows the results to be proportional. And that's the primary difference. It is a preferential system, but choice voting, or STV as it's known for short, single transferable vote, results in a proportional result. It results in more groups being represented and more groups being represented more accurately. So here's uh, a handful of groups, A, B, C, and D. Um, as it happens, I took these numbers to um, represent different ethnic groupings in Sacramento. So, and it may be give or take a few percentage points, but as I understand it, uh, Latinos are about 25% of the population, African-Americans 16%, that would be C. D represents the Asian population at 19%, and uh, B would be the uh, non-Latino Caucasian uh, population. So one of the concerns that I've come up with uh, that appears to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, are there no Latino representatives on the city council at current? Is that correct? Does anybody know? That, that's correct right now. So uh, I would think that one of the things you'd want to look at in coming up with a voting system is something that represents all the members of your community. Uh, if Latinos are not being represented, that's an issue. And for the city attorney, uh, that might be something that merits some uh, research as to whether or not that's a potential Voting Rights Act violation. Uh, I, I think that's an issue, whether it's rises to a level of legal concern or not, I certainly think that's, that's an ethical and moral concern. Now, we don't necessarily have to break things down just into uh, racial groups. There's other ways to look at representation. Are conservatives and liberals being represented fairly on your council? Uh, growth or no growth? Environmentalists or polluters, however you want to look at that. Uh, so one of the things that, that might be an issue and again, I don't know the demographics of your city particularly well, but I'm guessing that Latinos in the city are spread out so that they're not necessarily concentrated in any one district. And if that's the case, then district elections are going to be a hindrance to Latino political representation. And one of the answers for that is a citywide election. And that's what you can do with a choice voting system is to elect your council citywide, rank candidates in order of preference, and by virtue of the formula that results in the vote transfers, uh, most groups should be represented. It lowers the threshold for, for being elected, and it also makes it easier for groups that are spread out around the city to have their political uh, power concentrated. This is how Cambridge, Massachusetts currently uh, elects its city council. Um, this type of voting is used in Ireland and Australia. 
and it was used in Sacramento in 1921. It was later challenged by a sore loser. Uh, the local court upheld the system. An appeals court overturned it, and then the Supreme Court of California did not hear the case. Uh, I think most academics and political scientists believe that that is a, a moot decision at this point in light of revisions to the Constitution and uh, increasing home rule powers. So there's no reason to believe at this point that um, there are legal impediments to using proportional representation. There are other forms of proportional representation, and in fact, some of them have been, uh, uh, some communities have been ordered to use proportional representation in order to remedy uh, Voting Rights Act violations. And uh, I guess I should say that those are semi-proportional systems, uh, which is why I'm not going into them at this point, because the choice voting that I've described is a more proportional and more fair method of elections. So um, when I talked to Mark and he said, you know, come and talk to us about instant runoff voting and proportional representation and um, maybe you'd have a recommendation. And I think it's really premature and somewhat presumptuous of, of us to come in and, and give you a recommendation without doing more analysis and without getting more input from you folks and, and from the community. But there's just some ways to, to look at coming up with an election system and what are your goals. So I would think fair representation would be a goal, minimizing wasted votes. And if you remember back to that example where someone won an election with 37% of the vote, well, the 63% of the people who voted for loser, losers, losing candidates, um, those are wasted votes. If you have 51% to 49%, someone wins with 51%, 49% are wasted votes. Um, you want to maximize voter participation, and that goes back to um, the diagram I showed you where voter turnout at your primary is about 37%, and voter participation in November is at around 68% or so. So that would be a way to maximize voter participation, would be to have the elections in November. So just some um, problems to highlight that I would say in looking at Sacramento elections, low voter turnout, a real lack of competition. Um, races seem to be won in landslides when they're contested at all. Um, a high rate of incumbents being reelected. Anybody know the last time an, an incumbent was defeated for reelection? Just out of curiosity. Someone told me 1986. I, I have not verified that, but that's an awful long time to go without having an incumbent um, losing. Um, and as uh, I've pointed out, I think there's a real lack of diversity on the city council that needs to be addressed. So there's some choices that you could consider. And if you wanted the New America Foundation to assist you as a resource, we'd be happy to do that. But I, I think you folks have to make some decisions on your own and potentially uh, give us some marching orders, get some input from the community. You could use instant runoff voting for the mayor and for the council. You know, you, you can do that. You have the technology. Um, you can amend your charter that way. That would work. You could use instant runoff voting for the mayor, and you could use choice voting, a proportional preferential method. You could use choice voting for the council and elect the council citywide. Uh, you could go a little bit out of the box, and I'm just throwing this out there, but you could consider increasing the size of the council. As I understand it, 
The council has not increased in quite a long time, probably since the population of Sacramento was around 100,000 or so. So your population has increased five times or so, and the council stayed the same size. Making larger legislative bodies is not necessarily something particularly popular, but if you increase the size of your council, you could maintain district elections, and then you could add seats that were elected at large by choice voting. Uh, so I would say you have some research to do, uh, more input to gather, and then deliberations, and uh, just try to come up with something that's closer to sacred than sausage. So that's, that's what I have prepared for you, and I'm happy to entertain any questions. Mr. Taylor. Take a moment and explain how the transfer process works mathematically. Or is that too too complex to do? Do you need some computer in here to pull uh, it off? So for, for instant runoff voting, you're talking well, you about... You can see you've got five people and you've ranked the five. How do, how do you attribute the the weight of each of the, of each of the votes as you go down from one through five so to come up with a, with a total at the end? If, if you're using instant runoff voting... Um, all that happens is you eliminate the candidate with the fewest first-choice votes, and you look at that, the, the ballots that were cast for that candidate and say, okay, here's the uh, second choice goes to this candidate, another second choice goes to that, and they just get redistributed that way. Uh, it is a little more complicated. Did I lose you on that one? I don't understand. That's, that's the part I get lost that's, that, it's, it's yeah. the redistribution. How do you redistribute? He's How do you talk, decide who gets what in the redistribution process? So, about so you, you look at the ballots, okay? So uh, on an instant runoff voting ballot, candidates, um, you vote for candidates one, two, three. Okay. Okay? Um, just looking around to see if I could draw something out. But you, you vote one, two, three, okay? So um, let's go back. So let's say, again, we've got um, that example there. Let's say this was a, an instant runoff race. So in this instance, Childress is the, the low vote getter. Okay, so Childress is eliminated from the contest. Okay. So what happens is you look at the ballots for Childress and say, who were their second choice votes? Okay. Does that make sense so far? Well, if you divvy up Childress's 27% of the electorate and you see that 15% designated Woodard as their second choice, so Woodard gets those votes, Steele gets the other 12%. How do you do it if there are five people? Same thing. Um, now I'll go to the flowchart. Uh, you just keep eliminating from the bottom up. So just keeps going around and around. Uh, count the voters' first choices up at top. Does a candidate have a majority? No. You eliminate the last place candidate. You go up. You give the vote to their next rank candidates. You shuffle the ballots again. You count them. Um, you, know, you cross out voter number five, or excuse me, candidate number five. If you reshuffle all the ballots and you still don't have a majority, 
boom, number four is out of the picture. And you keep it. going up. Does that answer it? Yeah, good. Thank, thank you. Sure. Mr. Tapia. Uh, related to your presentation on proportional representation, it seems that kind of one of the, the cruxes of the question is whether or not, um, I guess it goes, thinking back to my political science days, about uh, virtual representation, whether as a, as a male voter, if a woman elected official can represent my interests adequately, or as a white voter, if a Latino elected official can represent my interests appropriately. And in our increasingly, you know, segregated world and, and we classify ourselves different ways, vegetarians and carnivores, you know, men, women, Democrats, Republicans, you know, at what point do you draw the line and say enough is enough and, and we all need to try to represent our community? Um, and it seems to me that that's been kind of also one of the political, I guess, uh, difficulties that uh, particularly some of the European countries have had that have proportional representation is that they just don't seem to have the same kind of stability nationally. Can you speak to a little, a little bit to, to those points? Sure. So as, as I hear, there are kind of two points, and, and one is when is enough representation enough or when can people represent other people's interests? And, you know, I'd have to say that's somewhat of a philosophical question on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think you have to ask people who are underrepresented. Uh, and I think we'll kind of, you know, it's a little bit like the, the obscenity thing. I know it when I see it. I think we'll have a good sense of when we've actually had a, had a more genuine representation when we see it. And uh, looking at, uh, for example, the United States uh, Congress, um, boy, that's not representative at all. So I, I would submit we have a long way to go. Uh, in terms of stability of... Um, governments and the like, um, I think that we're looking at different systems as well. It's not just the voting, but it's also a parliamentary system which can dissolve um, and which can be changed. So it's, it's a little bit of oranges and apples, not, not necessarily entirely, uh, but I think that Americans tend to be a little uh, frightened of, of European systems and I would submit if we look at the way that Europeans handle their government and um, systems of health care and a lot of other things that there's a, a lot to emulate in Europe. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that we have the, the most stable or productive government either. Uh, you know, we, we may have perhaps the semblance of it, but, but I'm, I'm not sure that it serves us particularly well. Ms. Hastings. Uh, my question is um, goes back to um, I don't remember whose question it was before <laughs> when we were talking about the number of candidates. So say if you had a huge field like 22, and but you only rank three, no matter how many are in the field, you only rank three. I need, suppose you need three. I <laughs> say to rank three, but if you had 25 candidates, people would still only rank one, two, and three. That depends. There are different ways to do it. Under some systems, and it depends on what the voting technology could handle, if you had 22 choices, you could rank them 1 through 22. Uh, or you could just vote, rank them 1, 2, 3, if that's how your, uh, your ballots or your voting technology was limited. It is, from what you understand, is that the three somehow a, sort of the magic number is that you showed us some examples with that. Is that commonly used? 
just to it, sort it, of stabilize it? Is, it, it is a more common limitation of voting equipment more than anything. For some reason, that's how some of the software in this country has been developed. Okay, you made a, a, a statement that Sacramento could use existing equipment with modifications like uh, Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Is that just a three-choice? Are we limited using our existing equipment to three choices, or is that not have totally unrelated to that? You know, I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to look at that. Um, I, I, I can say that it would probably be easier with three choices. Um, and well, I'm just wondering about, you know, being the, the viewpoint of a, the average type of voter. I mean, how much can you <laughs> manage in your head to try to come up with more choices? Well, and, it seems and to me three it would be plenty, you, you know, but I'm just grasping here to try to figure out is that, is there a reason for that, just because it's a simpler system, because it's something that more people would have an understanding from rather than just, you know, picking off a list without really understanding anything about the candidates? Uh, you know, there are some places that, that, as I said, that the list goes on kind of ad infinitum, um, but for ease of, of administration, I think that's, that's why there's sort of this default to three. Okay, one more question. When you, you gave some examples of using, um, you know, gender, race, politics, it, you know, as a way of, of having it, the, the legislative bodies more reflect the actual population. Is, is, is that all pretty equally done, or is politically maybe more important than the other two? People tend to identify themselves sort of on one political side or the other. Would that trump some of the other issues? I mean, I'm more likely to vote for someone of my political philosophy than I would someone's my gender or my race even. So I'm just curious as whether that's just kind of an equal footing with race and gender or that tends to be more important to people. My best guess is that in the proportional systems, um, and they are mostly used uh, in Europe and Latin America, et cetera. Um, and those are done by parties. So people tend to vote for parties. And I think that the um, selection of, uh, of gender and, um, or, the, or perhaps the, the categories of, of gender and ethnic minorities are, are more of a result of the process than people perhaps saying, oh, gee, I'm, I'm going to vote for someone because that person's a, a woman or French or whatever. Yep. So I think that's more a result of the process. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We'll need a uh, fact check on this issue of cost because, as you recall, the county clerk included, um, you know, some information that was passed out to the committee that for Elk Grove it would cost well over a million dollars to do that. So. You know, I mean, we need a fact check on that, I think. Alan? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you. Actually, I have two questions, and my first one uh, I think is a continuation of Cecily's question, which given that proportional systems in other countries, as I understand them, and I don't pretend to understand them terribly well, do have the voter identify themselves by party and vote by party, is that how they all work, or are there other systems where they identify differently? And it seems to me that how how the voters are sh shook, 
shooken out proportionally has a huge bearing on, on what the outcomes of that are going to be. So there's, there's the variety of systems, and I'll just show you this chart here. Um, so on the right-hand side, you see the proportional systems. The party list and mixed member are uh, a couple of types of proportional systems. Um, choice voting, as you can see, is next to it, and that is one that is not necessarily a party-oriented choice. That's the one that I'm talking about here tonight. Um, there are several kind of in the middle that are semi-proportional systems, and then at the far left, um, with the least proportional and also with the most wasted votes, is the plurality-majority systems that we use. So th there are no shortage of um, systems, and one of the items that I uh, put on your bibliography is this book, which is the International IDEA Handbook of Electoral System Design, which for those of you who are considering designing an electoral system, which in a sense are choosing one, um, and this lists essentially what every country in the world uses for their elections and compares and contrasts them and looks at the different components of them. So uh, rather than me belaboring the point here and examining the different systems, some of them are specifically oriented towards parties. Some of them, the mixed member system, are mixed between districts and parties where people vote both for their local candidates and for a party of their choice. Uh, so the, the systems are kind of all over the place and um, choice voting is one that can be done just on the basis of candidates. But I'm understanding you to say that if it's a hybrid system, the proportional part of it is pretty much party list based. Yes. Okay. Um, very different question. Um, a number of the comments you've made about increasing representation, and um, I forgot exactly how you articulated it. Uh, you talked about incumbency. Um, I think lend themselves to the notion that, say, ranked choice voting or other, some of these other systems increase the number of candidates or result in incumbents being reelected less frequently. Um, I'll leave it to some other time as to whether that's a good thing. But um, although I might submit that more candidates might be a good thing. Um, is there any quantitative support for, I guess, what are the hypotheticals I'm tossing out? It's particular in terms of increased candidate participation and frequency of incumbent reelection. I suspect that there are. I could not cite them offhand. Yeah, and, and the incumbency, uh, what was the first one that you? Um, frequency of candidate, par or increased candidate participation. Uh, that, that I would imagine there, there's, uh, in fact, I, I'd imagine there's um, data on both. And again, I, I can't pull it out of a hat right now. Okay, thank you. Mr. Johnson. Um, thank you. Um, I have a couple questions. Um, getting back to some earlier comments you made regarding um, this notion of, sort of opening the process up. And then secondly, the question of overcoming uh, parochialism, uh, particularly uh, geographical, pro geographical parochialism. You know, there's, um, I hear this all the time, um, especially in the realm of education, uh, when there's an argument for the notion of electing 
members of school boards, but our trustee areas, the argument is that, well, you encourage geographical parochialism, that uh, candidates elected from districts tend to lose sight of the overarching, i.e., district-wide uh, uh, concerns, i.e., the general, as opposed to the specific concerns or particularistic concerns of their respective geographical areas that they represent. Then there's also um, this city and other cities have a history uh, in the past, uh, and, and even I su suspect concurrent, currently, uh, the, the happenstance of where you reside will tend to um, have some impact in terms of your um, collective and individual political influence through your, through your representation, your representative. Uh, so if you happen to live in certain areas that tend to be more uh, clustered with, uh, with greater fluency in a, in a demographic standpoint, you tend to have more clout. You tend to have more, at least the perception is, that you tend to have more clout. <clears throat> it strikes me that the notion of proportion representation in which people of like concerns, whatever the basis of those underlying concerns may be, uh, would be prompted um, uh, to sort of coalesce, to sort of think about mutual interests, um, that the body might, uh, intuitively one would sense the body might, um, selected might reflect um, a greater attention not only to particularistic, uh, specific interests in a political sense, uh, again, no matter what the inline basis of those political interests may be, as well as sort of the overarching citywide or jurisdiction-wide concerns. Um, have, has the New America Foundation and or others looked at these types of dynamics from a research standpoint that have any kind of sense? I know the definitive research has probably not been done, but it, um, but it seems to me that intuitively um, these are issues that beg for uh, some attention. And I'm curious to what extent we've seen that attention being paid by given to it by, uh, by researchers. I think what you point out has been addressed in a, in a couple of books by the same author, one of which has been, uh, I understand, distributed to the committees behind the ballot box uh, by Professor Douglas Amy, and this other one is Real Choices, New Voices, which is listed in your bibliography. And uh, in both of these, um, Professor Amy speaks to representation sort of based um, almost accidentally on by where people sleep. And so he does very much look at that, and, and I think he has extensive research about how uh, issues transcend um, somewhat artificial uh, political boundaries. And so I, I would encourage folks to, to take a look at those um, two volumes. I think they're very Ms. instructive. Ms. Hastings. This is, I guess, for a clarification. Um, given Sacramento's mayor elected at large mm -hmm. and council pe eight council people elected within their districts, the only change that, without changing that structure, the only thing that we could look at is instant runoff voting 
for potentially either the mayor's race and or the council districts. Is that correct? I would think so. Because um, proportional representation involves having... Would be citywide. Right. So the only way to look at proportional representation would be to either convert some of the districts to at-large positions or add at-large positions, council seats, excuse me. Well, well, you, you could have them elected at large, nominated by district. I mean, okay, something like that. I mean, there are endless possibilities you could do. And, and another one, just to throw a monkey wrench in there, is that you could uh, use what's listed on that chart as cumulative voting, which is a semi-proportional system, uh, which is where, well, I guess that's also, uh, well, no, it could be done by district. Uh, but you could use that, um, which is where, um, I don't even know if I want to get into it, but it's another option. I don't, I don't think I'll confuse the, the, the issue right now. But as the, the chair has pointed out, there, there are other um, permutations that are possible as well. I'm not, I'm still not, I understand what you've, you know, tutored us on the instant runoff voting yes. and how that works with the the, the choice and, and uh, essentially taking people's second choice and distributing and so on. I, I still don't understand how, if the objective is to get to a legislative body that mirrors the community better than it does now, I don't understand how this proportional representation actually gets you there. In other words, let's assume we're by district, we're electing people by instant runoff voting. Isn't it still a random or uh, the result would not necessarily mirror the census demographics, or does it? I, I, I'm, well, if, I'm if, not clear how you get from here to there. Sure. If you use um, so instant runoff voting is not a proportional system. So if, if we used instant runoff to elect the council, right. uh, that would mean that we could have a majority winner in one election as opposed to two. Shorten campaigns, there'd be a number of benefits, right. but uh, a more representative council would not necessarily be, be one of those. If you use choice voting, what happens is, is that the choice voting is pro proportional voting with ranked choices. So, okay. so uh, proportional representation, choice voting, you rank the candidates in order of preference. And what happens is that because you're using proportional representation in the way that the votes um, are tallied and the, um, the ballots are transferred, is it lowers the threshold. So right now, the threshold of winning is, is majority. It's 50% plus one. If you elect the council citywide, and use a proportional system, the threshold lowers. And so maybe it's at, uh, you know, 11% or something like that. So if a candidate can get 11% support across the city, then they can be elected. And that is how that has the potential to translate into a more representative council. So, for example, and I'll go back just for... for lack of a better example at the moment, uh, Latinos have no representation on the council, yet they're 25 percent well, of the Well, now they don't. Just, you know, that bothered me before because we've definitely had Latinas and Latinas represented. Deborah Ortiz, Joe Cerno was a mayor, and 
few others. So anyway. Okay. So the current council. Yes. Um, uh, if that population is dispersed throughout the city, uh, in other words, if there's no particular concentration in any one district, then it makes it more difficult for Latinos, as one example, to gain representation in individual districts. That incidentally is a characteristic of our city. You know, they call District 8 our African-American district, and I think the latest, Grantland probably knows better than I do, but the latest population was that probably 35% black. Well, we never called an African-American district. We called an African-American influence district. Influence <laughs> district. No, I'm in the voting rights uh, yeah. laws. That's really what it's called. Yeah. It's not, it's, there is no such thing. There never has, has been um, a black district or a Latino district. They've been influence districts. Yeah. And um, just for your edification, there's an interesting history that's been written on black politics by David Copeland, by the way, the last 30-year period, which is fascinating. But if you just look at the demographics uh, of the community, it's it's not like Philadelphia, well, for example. Bill, can I take it back on this? I mean, in 1980, there was a big discussion in this, not this chamber, but across the way, over redistricting. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the analyses that had been conducted by members of the African American community and Legal Aid Society is the fact that during the course of the decade between 1970 and 1980, 20, something like um, 25%, 26% of the entire city's African-American population had been, all of a sudden found itself in five census tracts in the South area. Now, I don't mind going to Reno or Tahoe or Vegas on occasion, but the, but the odds on that happening on the natural, pretty stunning. Pretty long, so obviously they were steering, and so the argument was that, well, you know, if you're gonna, if if if, if for whatever reason, the less than invisible hand of marketplace is steering folks there, then the district that's drawn ought to reflect, you know, um, the community of interest, which is another term under the Voting Rights Act, and in, and so the council's rationale was no. We're going to give you two white representatives, so we'll cut it in half at 24th Avenue. And that was that was the decision by the council. So the geographical happenstance of 25% plus of the entire city's African-American population resulted in that particular discussion. And so if you had uh, a, a proportional representation approach, then that type of decision would have had last adverse consequences, at least perceptually, and I think practically, uh, from the perspective of, of equity in the form of representation. Yeah, I'm, I'm it still took until 1990, as you know, 1991, to address that issue. Right, right. I, I, I'm just, I, I'm unclear how it guarantees you. The there's favorite. no guarantees in anything. Yeah, well. The question is, do you lower the barriers and yeah. the obstacles? That's the question. Well, but there are no guarantees because in democracy there is no guarantee. That's why you have elections. Tina. Um, in San Francisco, they've, uh, they've um, applied the IRV now, right? Yes, yeah, since 2004. IVR, IVR right. right. Um, 
And so does that apply to all to all the supervisors and the city attorney and the assessor? And Yes. Okay. And they've just done it for one election so far? No, they've done it uh, a number of times since 2004. Okay. And do they limit it to three uh, choices or do they have more? Limited to three. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That was an easy one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. Thank you Thank very you. much for your and presentation. Thank you. And if I, I, I just want to say that I, I understand uh, that the, the burden is on the change, um, but I would encourage you to put your current system to as much scrutiny as you've put these uh, potential new ones to and see if it stacks up to what you really want for an, an election method and if it results in the type of uh, voter participation and in the type of council that you want. So thank you very much for your time. I appreciate Th it. Thank you very much for taking the time. Okay. Um, members, we're on to item four. Shirley, could you read the item? This is a review of the July outreach meetings. Okay. We've had, uh, I guess, four outreach meetings. Um, most of us have attended at least one uh, of those meetings. And at this point, I'd like to get some feedback from the members as to what your views on those, what we could be maybe doing differently or better or should be doing and so on. And Joanne, could we start with you? Uh, we, uh, several of us were at the meeting uh, for the, uh, at the Heart Center in Midtown today. Uh, there was a great turnout, maybe uh, 40, 50 people in the room. Uh, people listened attentively to the, um, as I went through the uh, format of the presentation, um, learning from you at the Pinnell Center, the first one that I attended, uh, that you did. Uh, people, um, I, I didn't uh, see evidence of a burning passion, like, oh, choose me, you know, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> But uh, then again, uh, people were, uh, in fact, one woman came up afterward and said, I was ready with my comments, and you didn't take them. I was ready to give you some feedback right now, um, which I, you know, I thought was a really great response. So um, I, I felt like, and I'd be interested uh, in the other folks, that, the other uh, committee members that attended, I, I thought um, the, the format of the presentation was fine. Um, I, I wasn't sure it got down to practical enough levels so people thought, oh, yeah, I do have an opinion about that that I'd really like to share. Um, that, but um, I also felt under time pressure in terms of uh, this was a committee meeting that uh, we were uh, asked to present at and had a certain amount of time to do with that and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the more, so what I would learn from that is the more practical um, we can make those presentations and uh, the more detailed that people, some people really understand what kind of things uh, we're looking at, I, I think the better, but uh, certainly the meeting that we were at today, people were lively and engaged in the subject. 
Cecily? Um, I was only at the meeting today and not at the previous ones, and I do have a question. Was the existing strong mayor proposal that's under consideration, was that brought up in any of the previous meetings? Every one of them. Okay, it wasn't brought up tonight, which I found. I was a couple minutes late, and I thought maybe I missed that. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that really kind of stunned me, because mm -hmm. what I hear is just out in the community is just people still being completely mixed up with our role versus that. And it seemed like even when there was a question tonight about why we were doing this or how we had started this process, that never even came up. Um, you know, it, it, to get more feedback, and again, I didn't necessarily think this until I sat through it tonight, um, <clears throat> there are some basic questions that maybe we should put out to the audience. And one of them that is people I think would be able to comment on was, do you think the mayor should have a seat at the city council? Because that's kind of a big deal when we're looking at the strong mayor system versus the council manager system. And I, w I would love to have people think that one through, and I, and I think they might be able to come up with some answers pretty quickly, and that would get that whole discussion going about an ex you know the executive off being an executive and the council being the legislative body. Okay. Um, currently, I think you your schedule was such that you couldn't make those, uh, Alan. Any, any comments? You don't okay. have to make any. Uh, just <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Um, I guess my first comment is I, I actually didn't have my head around the using the existing meetings, and I know that was a staff recommendation, and my experience is that it was a good one, and I wanted to recognize that. Um, I, uh, I guess the rest of what I have to say I think more falls under our decision-making matrix because I'm hoping we'll give people a little bit more to react to when we do the next round, and hopefully we're going to use our record from the preliminary decisions, and those are my two comments. I think that's a good point. I, uh, just in response to Cecily's comments, there's not, it's pretty esoteric at this point. This is what we've done. We've, you know, this is the progress of it, but we really haven't gotten into any decision-making, and once we do, I think there'll be a little bit, I, I think, there'll be a little bit more reaction. Bob, did you have? I haven't been able to attend. Okay. Chet? No, you I've attended three of them. I think when we get to the next rounds, we need more time, and we need more time particularly for the people who show up to join in the discussion, uh, present views, uh, ask questions. A half an hour where we just talk at them might have been all right for the first round because it's encouraging people to know that we're active. But even tonight, two of the women showed up at 5.30 because the announcements that were sent out by that center said it would be at 5.30. And two of them came with real ideas they wanted to talk about, and that was one of the ones that came to see you. And they were quite disappointed that they didn't get any chance at all to talk about anything serious. And they had really studied it, and they came loaded for bear and we need to give more time. On the other hand, I appreciate the staff recommending we meet at the time of the neighborhood meetings because that assures turnout. 
at the Heart Center, where I often go, we always serve food. So, of course, we had a huge turnout there, as we always do. But if we should meet on the time of the neighborhood meetings, it may be we should put us on last so that we could have it wide open to run for 45 minutes or an hour or however long one or two people want to stay around. Uh, when we put ours right in the middle with a police officer coming next, uh, there is no way we can run more than one or two minutes over. So I'd suggest at least we think about those. Sure. Good comments. Chris? Um, I attended the first meeting, and you know it went about the way I expected it to, and um, there were about as many community members as I thought would show up, which wasn't a whole lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I don't think John or Tina, you've I, been... I went to the one today. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, yeah, I obviously agree with Chet. We, those people wanted to talk more, and it was just too compressed. So next time, I think we just need to make sure that we, like you said, go to the end of the agenda or whatever and do our best to give them an opportunity because there are quite a few people there, and I think if they'd had the opportunity, they would have talked more. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, I attended three out of the four, didn't go tonight, uh, but it seemed to me that um, we, we didn't, Chris is right, the first one didn't have too many people. The second one, we were actually... Um, because of the furloughs, uh, had to leave early. So we had some time problems there uh, in South Natomas. <clears throat> and then the one on Stockton Boulevard I thought was quite lively, but we were a little rushed. I, I agree with that. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Oops. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we had uh, too little time. I thought uh, we really piqued a lot of interest with the presentation that you you gave. Um, but definitely, I think next time, uh, and and I think there's also going to be a lot more meat that they can really sink their teeth into with uh, you know the next meeting. So, yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you for that. Um, okay, with that, uh, let's go to item five. Shirley, you want to call that? This is the committee decision-making process and framework discussion. Okay, members, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to take uh, a little bit of the lead on this since this was kind of uh, an issue that I talked to you about at our last meeting, that we needed to begin to think about uh, the next phase of our work, which is the decision-making process. Um, in Section uh, 5C of the resolution that created this committee, um, it requires that each final recommendation be approved by seven of the 11 members. And so I think it's uh, incumbent upon us to try to create a process where we arrive at as much of a consensus decision as we can um, because we, we have to come to essentially a supermajority, uh, if not a complete consensus, um, in order to recommend to the Council a final uh, recommendation on any subject matter. Now, we've been hearing from various folks like we did tonight and uh, doing a lot of reading uh, agreed upon the 12 benchmark cities 
developed the matrix, essentially some tools uh, to look at this information and a website and so on. So now the question is, how do we get from where we are now, a lot of information, a lot of material, and there's going to be more uh, testimony, there's going to be more material, there's going to be more reading and so on. But this item is um, put before you tonight as a suggestion to kind of facilitate the decision process, um, which we should begin in August. Um, if you can turn to attachment one of this report, um, you'll note that, um, as you recall, the committee adopted the work plan, which said uh, on May 7th we would um, include a decision-making strategy that would set aside some time at the end of each topical area to kind of arrive at tentative decisions as we're thinking about the subject matter, as we had some discussions. And at the end of the process, we would revisit all of those tentative decisions and come to a final decision. That's kind of a conceptual framework that we set in our work plan. Now, um, the decision-making framework that we're suggesting is outlined in uh, attachment two. And what we're suggesting is a two-part decision-making process. And the first meeting of the topical area, whether it's governance, it's elections, or whatever, we would have um, a discussion of that item. We would use what we've included as attachment three, a worksheet for each of the topical areas, which would be a list of questions that would act as kind of a prompt or a starting point. And in that first meeting, we would have this discussion and going back and forth and hopefully arrive at some idea of where the committee is on that subject area. We would then ask the staff to return at meeting number two with a recommended tentative decision that we would discuss, modify, or whatever at meeting number two. So, and then we also have on attachment two the order of subjects, and this is where our agenda for this evening got a little fouled up. <clears throat> what we had intended to do was take up the green waste issue, uh, and I think you know what we're recommending. We're recommending elimination of, of this subject from further discussion, since it isn't a charter issue. Um, we're going to talk about that today. It's not on the agenda, so we can't talk about it, but <clears throat> the idea would be to uh, talk about it with a report next week or at our next meeting, which is uh, August 3rd, and then make a decision on green waste. We would then have our first uh, discussion of the charter updates and cleanup items. And that would be based upon a report that the city attorney is going to be preparing on the technical cleanup updates that need to be done for the charter. We would then 
uh, in the second meeting, uh, take that up and make a decision on that. Now, the idea here is to take this process that we're outlining, this two-phased process, where you discuss it in meeting number one, direct the staff to come up with a tentative decision that we could talk about in meeting number two, we would take kind of the easy one first, <laughs> the technical cleanup items and so on, to see if this process works and maybe we have to make some adjustments as we go along. And then we'll take up some of the harder ones like governance, budget, uh, pointing authority, and so on. And what we did here was include a schedule on page four of the report, the way that would work. And for example, tonight we would <clears throat> we would proceed with the decision-making process, make a decision that this is something we want to try out. We would not talk about the green waste item tonight since it's not on the agenda. We would talk about that on August 3rd and also make a decision on the green waste at, on the August 3rd meeting. So there is a change to that little schedule. Then we would take up the city attorney's recommendations on charter updates and cleanups. Then on your meeting for Monday, August 17th, we would make a decision on the city attorney's items, and then the first of two meetings, we would talk about governance, budget, election questions, or you know whatever category we want, and then move on in that kind of a, a manner. So that's that's kind of the framework that we came up with. We have attached uh, an example of the kind of worksheet that we would prepare for, for each one of these topic areas. And I think what this allows us to do is, as we go through um, these items, we, we're keeping in mind uh, the major question, which is, um, do we need to make a change at all? And I think the question on the city attorney's cleanup items, I think they're probably all items we can agree on that we need to probably change. Then the question is, are they significant enough to have an election to change the charter? Then if you make that decision, then we can get on to the harder ones, which as long as you're going to have, a, assuming that you want to take care of the cleanup items at a little at an election as long as you're having an election are there other items you want to address but in these first couple of meetings the whole question of should we change at all uh, do we need to change uh, has to be answered I think first and that's a that's a big issue why answer the question why change so I think um, at this point uh, the framework's uh, clear, and I, uh, I think we can take some questions and maybe get to a decision on this. Uh, Mr. Murphy. Well, a comment and then a couple of questions. It's much more organized than my one sheet of paper, so I appreciate that effort. And, and I, do like, I do like the process. But, uh, the first question has to do in this meeting number two. This is a, a staff effort to divine what we've discussed 
or, or see if they've pulled some things together? Is that, yes. Is that the perspective? Yes. The, okay. yes. the idea would be at the first meeting we would have a fairly robust discussion and use our worksheet, hopefully coming up with enough direction to give the staff the input necessary to put it on paper. And then my, my second maybe comment, because I'm not quite sure I've formulated the question yet, really looks at both pages three and four here. Um, the order of subjects, um, the third one, third bullet down is governments and budgets. The fourth bullet down is full-time mayor council term limits. And we have a similar breakout on page four in the meetings. I can pretty strongly perceive situations where my decisions on one of those might change based on the discussion in the other. So, um, and, and for example, if uh, certain powers were in place, would you put term limits in place as well, which are split off here? Um, I'm just not quite sure if we come to a time decision on one of those and we come to there, are we going back and change them? I mean, I haven't thought that process through myself, yeah, so I yeah, guess yeah. I'm raising it as a point of discussion. Yeah, the idea here would be tentative decisions. This is kind of where the committee is with the understanding that we're going to come back and revisit it and make final decisions. Tentative decision is not a final decision, but it's, a, it's an indication of where the committee's headed. That, that would be the way I would, I would verse it. Um, Mr. Newland. Yes, I wish it were possible to agendaize the order in such a way that we could have more robust discussions as we go along. For example, this question that we need to consider at everyone, is any change of major sort needed at all? Could that be written as an agenda item in such a way that at least we could get in some robust discussion of that as we go along at virtually every meeting? I think, I think we need to do that. My, my sense was that as we start, discussing these items. And we're going to start from the easiest ones. Yeah. We're going to talk about green waste. We're going to then talk about the technical issues like the school board and a few other things that are in the charter. Then at, as you're discussing this, the question is, okay, these things need change, but are they significant enough to warrant an election? Yeah. That's the question. So I, your idea of putting that question for up up front first and foremost at every meeting might, is not a bad idea. Yeah, I think. Uh, anybody else? Mr. Tapia. Our recommendations, though, wouldn't necessarily trigger an election, though. No. Right. No. If you just no. put something, we're suggesting this to the a, council. Yes, is a report. And then, yeah, it would be a report to the council, and then if they decide to, they want it to put some or all, it would just be a measure on the ballot, right. not a special election to consider the item. That, that's right. Uh, ours is a report that these are the 15 things we think ought to be looked at if you're going to have a special election sure. and, and so on. It, the, that's right. Uh, that's the way I'm looking at it. We're not, we're not developing a model charter. We're not developing an item that will go on the ballot. We're preparing a report for the council. That's the way I look at it. Mr. LaFossa. Um, I alluded to this earlier, um, very much in tune with the idea of what a tentative decision is. Um, by way of background, I've been doing my homework and I've been reading uh, 
Professor Zonenshine's book on the L.A. Charter Reform Experience, and I read by a part, of course, their process lasted, I think, two years or longer, and, uh, but there was a part where uh, I was reading about soliciting public comment on some pre preliminary decisions. It sounded like a sort of you know, federal register process. Obviously, ours would be less elaborate. Um, but but, but <laughs> perhaps that's not a useful model. But I hope that we will, we will perhaps broadcast, isn't the right word, our preliminary decisions so that we can get some feedback on them, because I do think that will be one of the best ways we're going to engage the public when they have something to react to. I think that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, anybody else at this point? Okay. Um, well, what I'd ask for um, is a an approval by the committee subject to the change that I indicated on green waste having to be considered and voted upon at the August 3rd meeting, and uh, we've already uh, continued item 6 uh, on our agenda tonight to August 3rd, so that would comport with the revised schedule that's set forth in, in item 5. Yes, Bob. Um, I visualize if the discussions really open up, like I hope they do, I guess I want to know how these are going to be phrased on an agenda. Um, if we create a very narrow agenda, we're going to get some discussion about whether we can talk about it or not. So, so I... I uh, I'm a little bit troubled about just this distinct, narrow, you can't get into the next issue and how it might impact the next one. I, I appreciate what's being done here. I, don't, don't misunderstand me, but I'm, I'm very concerned how narrow the agenda is for our, for our discussion because certain things are going to trigger certain other discussions here. I, I, there's no question about it. So I, I think it's a question of how, how uh, clever the staff can be and giving us some, some leeway. You appear to all be looking at me for some kind of guidance, but um, <laughs> I've been there before. <laughs> um, I guess I'm, I'm, I, the answer would be it depends on what you really plan on discussing in that meeting and what you'd like to discuss. But the agenda, as I, I contemplate that staff would present the agenda items in such a way that there would be discussion of multiple facets of any issue and perhaps other issues that touch upon them so you could phrase an agenda item broadly enough as long as you're willing to frame it broadly enough you can have the discussion on any item that fairly fits within that noticed agenda item so that'll depend on how broad you want to have that discussion now um, you know there, there could be other options to address that situation you could agendize multiple items and they will be on the agenda. If you start touching on one, you wait and touch that later during the uh, during the meeting. Or it can be that there are subsets of one agenda item, or you just broadly talk about tentative decision making across the board. It all depends on how you want to structure the actual discussion, and if you want to focus it on one particular decision or a broader discussion of everything that this committee wants to talk about. I guess it depends on how you want to structure the decision-making process. And as I understand the way that the chair and staff have presented it tonight, 
the reason it has been done is to allow for a methodical decision-making approach, but not to squelch discussion on topics if, if that's the committee's decision. So I, the answer is it could be as broadly, um, uh, the agenda could be stated in such a way to address your concerns, but it just depends on which way the committee wants to actually go about the decision-making process as a more free-form debate or as a more focused um, decision-making process on particular items as you go along. Ms. Hastings. Mr. Murphy, um, it, the concern that we're limited to what we can talk about, um, for instance, the idea of the council members being elected by districts at large or a hybrid system and the use of proportional representation, I don't see any place where that fits in. But it's been brought up pretty much by every person that's come and testified, yet it's not necessarily on our structure. And so I'm just... Oh, I think that would be in the elections area. I, I don't think there's any question about that. I think what Mr. Murphy was talking about is, let's just say we've agendized budget, budget um, in, under the governance, the budget, the appointment power, and, and, and the uh, governance structure. And he wants to talk about elections or term limits. Okay. Okay, then... We're going to have to figure out a way where he can do that, but kind of focus in on the one subject matter so that at least we can get a tentative leaning where the committee is going with the understanding we're going to come back and revisit those. And if you happen to decide down the road on something different that would change your vote on something in the – you could do that. It's, it's not a problem. But – um, I just don't know if any way to – well, I don't know. It'd just be my accounting personality where I like to do these things systematically. Maybe that maybe, – maybe we ought not to do that. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Thank you. May I make a further suggestion? There's more than one way to skin a cat, and, you know, you could agendize multiple items, but then your decision-making is only on – the last of these three or four items, and you can there you can build it all well, into the uh, agenda okay. as you go along. Okay. That but that, that'd be one that would yeah, work. option. That would work. Yeah, that, mm -hmm. you know, that would work. So it depends on how that you want to actually approach the decision-making process and where you want to stick these subjects in with one another during that decision-making process or discussion. So mm -hmm. we could work, find a way and to make it fit. Yeah, that works. It, as long as we're focusing the committee on one area and allowing them to talk about these others, if if the it need, it rises, yeah, I don't think I'm that's. Counting on you to keep us focused. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Johnson, I, I think you've answered my my observation. It's not a question of whether you can discuss it. It's a question of what decisions you can put action to. Yeah, take. that's yeah. Because uh, there's there's nothing that says you can't talk about anything you want to, no matter how. Undermained or non-germane it may be. Right. You just ne can't necessarily take action on it because yeah. you haven't publicized in advance. So I don't. I agree. No one wants to have discussions squelched in that regard. And yeah, I don't think right, you, I agree. And I think that there are so many interrelated pieces that it would be difficult for me personally. It's difficult anyway, but it would be difficult for me personally to not to reference some of those other pieces, those other connections. Uh, because for me, they are important. I, I agree. I think for all of us, we probably share in many areas, those, those, those kind of concerns. 
Mr. Newland, Dr. Newland. Yes, I think that solves it. We need an agenda that's not a straight jacket. We need a loose flowing robe, but nonetheless one that is specific on decisions. Okay. Uh, Mr. Olfasa. Just to make sure I got this clear, and I, 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 on the second round, when we're answering more precise questions, are those more refined decision points all going to need to be individually agendized? And if so, that assumes that if I have a particular take on a sub-question that arises out of the original discussion at the prior meeting, I need to articulate that probably in the prior meeting so that you all can agendize that more refined sub-question so that an action could be taken on at the subsequent meeting? I don't envision that that's the way that staff and, and the chair have presented the, the, the concept. It's more of to the extent at the first meeting it would be a noticed item of discussion governance structure to be a as the chair has described it, a robust discussion of the various viewpoints and everything that's happened and anything that may touch upon it. At the end of that uh, session, the chair would, would seek to um, synthesize all the recommend or discussion that's happened, the leanings of the group, and try to get a uh, consensus of what staff needs to bring back at meeting number two. Staff would come back at meeting number two, which would be agendized for tentative, tentative decisions on governance structure, and that would be noticed as such, and staff would come back with 10 or 12 um, sub-recommendations under governance structure. I think as, as contemplated, the agendas, which would be fairly broad, but would, be, would fairly give notice to the public of the decisions of the committee, and would be, it would be okay to have individualized decisions, sub-decisions, on meeting number two about, quote, governance structure, unquote. And you don't have to, the Brown Act doesn't require you to list out each sub-question that is going to be a matter of decision at the second meeting. So I don't think that's an actual problem. Does that it, answer your question? And you. I think to kind of follow up a bit on that, it's also possible that you may decide that staff, you'd like staff to conduct some additional research between meet, meeting one and meeting two or outline some alternatives or identify some examples of some of these similar cities or benchmark cities where they take an, a certain approach to an issue. And so the meeting one, meeting two approach allows staff also to conduct that research or identify these issues that arise at meeting one, number one and provide us an opportunity to provide, conduct some additional research and bring you back that information. Yeah, and, I, and uh, if in fact at meeting number two you have this list of recommendations and sub-recommendations and so on, and as a result of the decisions, I mean the discussion at meeting number two, there needs to be a change or a modification, that's, that's the purpose of what we need to do, sure. I think, anyway. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. Um, okay. The, the, yeah, we need a motion with, uh, I guess, the change that the, or clarification the city attorney made and the change to the calendar regarding uh, green waste, please. Yep. Mr. Chair, uh, yes. I don't believe this is an action item. Is it? 
It does say action on the agenda. Oh, okay. Discussion and action. Okay. Excuse me. Then. Okay. Could we have a motion, please? So move with the changes. Thank you, Mr. Murphy. A second. Thank you, Graham. Uh, all in favor? Aye. Opposed? Thank you very much. Okay, item six has been continued. Uh, public comments. Are there anybody in the audience wants to address? Do we have any? I have no one signed no. up to okay. speak. Committee ideas and questions. Okay, without a, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Tapia. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I had a couple of different questions uh, and things I wanted to discuss briefly. Um, you and I had a conversation um, at the last meeting about um, perhaps inviting uh, someone from one of the strong mayor cities to come address the board. Can we get an update from staff or from you on, on progress on getting somebody? We are working with the mayor's office and attempting to invite the attorney general as well as former Fresno Mayor uh, Alan Autry to your next meeting. Uh, but nothing scheduled as of yet? Or? No formal confirmations at this point. Mr. Thomas. Oh, I have another one, if okay. you don't mind. Oh. Um, I did uh, <laughs> receive a copy, or a copy that all the committee members got of the um, Model City Charter. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, I spent some time reviewing it, and uh, I, I thought it had some very helpful things in it. I was um, actually a little disappointed that our speaker um, from the National Civic League didn't discuss it more in his presentation to us because I did find some very helpful things in it. Um, and included in this latest edition in the appendix uh, is a pretty lengthy discussion uh, entitled Options for Mayor Council Cities. And um, it I would encourage all the committee members to uh, to read it. It does make two suggestions to cities that are uh, considering going to a mayor council form. Uh, and what I found rather curious is that uh, the one that it recommends, it says if you're going to go down this path, we recommend that you do you know, this approach. Uh, and it calls it the mayor council CIO form. And it goes out of its way to say this is not a strong mayor form. Um, but it is, a, it is a form in which the mayor does not serve on the council, uh, in which um, the mayor um, appoints uh, the, uh, the CAO uh, with the concurrence of the council. And um, again, it says this is not a strong, this is not, this is not your usual strong mayor system. Uh, and then it describes the more traditional strong mayor system where the city is centered around mayoral you know, powers. Um, so I would really encourage uh, the committee members to take a look at that. It, it's it really it, the terminology they use um, it took a little getting used to because it, it was different than the, what we've heard from a number of the speakers, a number of the presenters, and even in the discussion that we've had among here in terms of what, what is a strong mayor's system, what's a weak mayor's system, um, and even um, yeah. So, so I would just I would encourage you to to, to take a look at that. And finally, um, in terms of public participation, also in the appendix of this document, um, there is a um, citizen-based governments, a process to engage citizen and charter revision. And it's a several-page um, kind of outline on, on ways that cities may want to um, engage the citizenry on uh, charter change. Uh, I think we're past some of the point of some of where these things, these recommendations are. You know, it discusses whether or not you should form a commission or you should have some sort of a 
convention. Um, but there might be some good outreach suggestions in here um, that I would encourage you all to take a look at. Uh, and finally, related to the same thing, um, I did try um, finding this document earlier on the Internet. wasn't able to do so. I imagine it's copyrighted. Um, I know they, they, they're selling copies. But this might be a document that might be useful to the public. So um, I would like to suggest that maybe the city clerk make a copy of this available for public to check out or the library. Um, I did check the library and uh, in, the, in, the, in the entire network. This document is not available. So um, I would like to somehow get this out there. I don't think we can post it on our website. But um, Mark, you did some just, work yes, on Just that. a point of clarification on that. We did make it available to the city clerk, and it is available for it public review at the city clerk's office. There's a reference to that on the bibliography of resources on the committee's website. Mm -hmm. Does it note they can get a copy from the clerk's office? It does. It indicates that it is available for review at the city clerk's office, and the city clerk's office will allow people to reproduce copies of various pages that they're interested in copying. Thank you. Can we do that uh, and comply with the copyright issue? I thought they wanted to sell these things. Um, if I understand what, what, what Mr. Presswich is, is indicating is that the clerk will make available the document for review, which is required. However, um, typically what would happen is a document that's been presented to the majority of these members would be available for copying by the public. However, there is an exception to that, and that is if it's protected by copyright. And so the document is available for public review at the clerk's office at any time the public wants to review it during open business hours, but that copying would be limited to what would otherwise be known as fair use, and that would be a, a restricted portion of the document, and the, and the public will not be able to copy the entire document as they would for any, like a staff report or anything like okay. that. How does that work, Matt, if somebody who just wants, like, the section on citizen participation copied, could you do that? I don't know how large of a section that is, but I'm, like I assume that's a pretty people. small section that's probably acceptable. Okay. So it's kind of a judgment call? Yeah. Okay. That's how we do it. For what? There, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, certain percentage that is generally considered allowable as fair use uh, under the copyright Act. of the document? Well, that's just a um, essential. It's generally considered a percentage of the document, okay. a number of pages, for example. Okay. Tina? Uh, yes. I was hoping that we could get a report back from staff, maybe Mark, maybe a combination with Shirley, just of the timing relationship between the what we're doing and the strong mayor initiative that's been proposed by... Mayor Johnson. So just sort of a discussion about when it gets presented to council, when it might go on the ballot, what types of questions the council can ask in order to, you know, you know, delay it or put it on a later date because they want additional information with regard to it, and, you know, what possible election dates it might be on the ballot. So if we could have kind of a conversation about how our work relates to that proposal, it would be helpful to me. And I think it would be helpful to the public. City Clerk. We anticipate uh, at least in August, um, in the first week or two, that we will know whether or not the certification comes from the county, at which point we will be placing an item on the agenda 
uh, for the council in uh, as a companion piece. The city attorney's report will also come to council with options on what happens and what the next steps might be. So that will be coming up very soon. It'll be in August, I'm sure. That'd be great. I mean, no, we're not asking you to, to repeat it or, you know, do it in advance of there. So just concurrently with what the council it'll, gets would be great. Yeah, it'll be soon. Okay. Okay. Uh, Chris? Thank you, Mr. Chair. I thought of one more question I wanted to ask. Um, you had mentioned that the city attorney is going to be coming in to brief us or discuss with us some technical charter amendments. Um, unless I'd missed it at a previous meeting, that was the first I had heard of it. Um, and it just kind of got me thinking, uh, you know, the, the council can put down any, any charter amendment on the, on the ballot that they want, and we're kind of here to wrestle on some particular ones. I'm just wondering, is, is the logic behind having the city attorney come here and talk to us about these to kind of get our motor revving a little bit and kind of a decision-making process down, or is there some kind of logic behind if well, the this group considers them and then gives them to the council, they have more weight, or what's, what's the logic? There? Well, there Mr. Two. Chair, Mr. Chair, um, before we get too far down this road, this is kind of the same issue we had <laughs> at our last meeting. So. Um, maybe it's best to discuss that at, at, at a, another meeting. Okay, we'll do that. Anything else? Okay, meetings adjourned. Thank you.